Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is The Solo Collective, and I'm Rebecca Seal. My husband and I have worked together on and off for pretty much 12 years, which is basically as long as we've been together. And I cannot say that that was something that we did with any kind of plan. He's a food photographer. I'm a food writer some of the time. And so people just started asking us to work together. And then much later just a few years ago we opened a photography studio together for him to use and other people to hire and I became more and more involved with that over the years. So I am fascinated with the idea of understanding how couples and careers work which is how I came across Jennifer Petrolieri who studies that exact question and I wanted to talk to her for this episode because Not only does she study couples, but she also studies the relationships that exist around our working lives. Jennifer is the Associate Professor of Organisational Behaviour at the business school INSEAD, and she's in France, but she's married to an Italian, but she's actually British. So I was really interested to get her perspective on the way that this stuff plays out in culturally different environments. And she's also the author of Couples That Work, which is a book about how dual career couples can thrive in both love and work. This isn't just about couples. Jennifer's really interested in how close relationships of all sorts shape who we become professionally and personally and how crisis and uncertainty also shape us, which is, you know... I don't even need to say how relevant that is for now. So we need to understand that. We need to understand what having a load of housemates working together means or a pair of flatmates or a pair of parents or a couple. You know, how do we how do we navigate that stuff? How do we figure out who does what and whose work has primacy and how we share our spaces? All of that. And so I basically wanted Jennifer to answer all those questions for me and she did She did a brilliant job. So I hope it's as helpful for everybody else as it has been for me. Thank you so much, Jennifer, agreeing to talk to me today. I'm really interested in what you're going to be able to share with us because I think one of the most knotty things that solo workers have to navigate is the relationships around them, whether that's housemates or partners, maybe even their parents, their friends their children. There's a lot when you work for yourself and very often when you're working from home, there's possibly a lot more of that stuff to navigate than if you work in a traditional setting, potentially a long way from your home. Yeah, so I'm fascinated because your research has really focused on um, helping people navigate that stuff more successfully. I guess I should set the scene in saying as well that um, my husband and I work together quite closely, but we, about six years ago, we realised that we needed to kind of create a really strict structure for that because we were 
very close to becoming colleagues rather than partners. Yeah. And um, we made rules where uh, we don't talk about work after 8.30 p.m. And you're not allowed to talk about work before breakfast. And you're not allowed to talk about work at the weekend unless there's a kind of genuine emergency reason for doing so. And that's been a really helpful kind of boundary that we've put in place to maintain us as a couple rather than <laughs> just as two people who do do work things together. I guess my first more general question is, is what have you learned about working from home in particular and the impact that it might have on our sort of closest relationships, whatever they might be? Well, I think that word you use, boundaries, is really key. Because what we see about when we go to the workplace, one of the main things it offers us is a transition space, right? That we have a distance, both physical, psychological, mental, and also relational between work and home. And of course, when we work from home, we just can't have that distance in the same way. And so we need to create it through boundaries. And we know from the research is we tend to work a lot more hours it's really hard to put work down. And so people who work from home are much more likely to get burnout than people who work in offices. And all this really screams to this research on boundaries and how do we create them? And it sounds like you kind of fell into creating them, but there are some kind of rules around what we can do to make that easier. I think that stuff also applies if you just work for yourself. You know, I mean, we, for example, have a small business at the end of our road that we run together. You sort of bring it home, even though even though it has some advantages because there's a transitional thing about moving from one space to another. I think when it's your thing, it sometimes almost doesn't matter when you're doing it, if it's just you doing it. And I think it's the question of where does the work stop? You know, you can always do something more if it's your solo work, if it's your own business, if it's your independent venture. There's always something to be doing. And the question is, where do you draw the line and where do you stop that doing? And what I found in my working couples is most often tensions arise because we don't have those lines. And so it's, you know, can we build what I often call these bright white lines, right? These lines that we just do not cross unless there's a total emergency. And that seems to make it easier than if we have a kind of general rule. Well, yeah, I agree with that to a certain extent, but I also think there's a little bit of an advantage to kind of controlled rigidity. Like one of the things that I like about our rule is that you're allowed to work at a weekend once a month, like, and the other one keeps track of that very carefully. But that's still a bright white line, right? It's once a month and that's it. Yeah, no, you're right. We're, we're in agreement. Do we have to sort of accept that to a certain extent, if we live with someone who works for or by themselves, or we are someone who works for or by ourselves, do we have to kind of accept that the people around us will become quasi colleagues to a certain extent? And do we do we sort of have to just live with that and make it work as well as we can? Or do we have to try and really guard against that happening? So I think it's much easier for couples when one is solo working and one isn't. So, or, or housemates or, you know, any kind of family arrangement where there's more than one working adult in the house. It's easier to maintain the boundaries, but the danger if just one of you is solo working is that person tends to get loaded up with the household tasks, right? Well, you're at home anyway, so it, it's fine if the delivery guy comes or it's, you're at home anyway, so can you just take the dog to the vet? That tends to be the problem in that case. In, in the case where both adults or multiple adults are working from home or working very close to home solo, that's when it becomes a lot more difficult. I guess I, I sort of, I suppose by quasi-colleague, I kind of meant, and maybe it's incorrect terminology on my part, I guess I kind of meant people to whom you might kind of vent or debrief quite heavily, like more than you might do in a sort of 
traditional arrangement where you just come home and you're like, oh, so-and-so was really annoying at work today. I feel like because I don't have many people to talk to about my work, I end up talking to my husband to quite an extreme degree (laughs) about work. You would be surprised. (laughs) So my big two topics of research is loneliness at work and is uh, working couples. And what I find is that many people are lonely at the work. We know that it's an epidemic in the workplace. And many of them, their own event is their partner or their housemates or whoever it is in their house. So I think it's perhaps there's a slight more danger if you're a solo worker, but I wouldn't assume that everyone working in offices has a lot of people to vent to. And in fact, what I what I find in my research with the solo workers, it's really about can you build up a kind of social support network around yourself, even if you don't work with people. So we also see in the research that up to a certain point, it's actually a good thing to vent with your partner. Obviously, there's a line you can go over. But what we find is that couples who do share their issues about work tend to be closer together. So they tend to have a better relationship, lower rate of divorce, et cetera. So I think in the past, we've sometimes thought, okay, it's best to keep these two worlds really separate. That's not actually what the data shows. That is so reassuring. <laughs> because I've, I mean, genuinely, I've often wondered, like, you know, we're fine, but um, <laughs> I've often <laughs> wondered whether we are kind of risking our relationship by working so closely together and being so kind of codependent on each other in terms of providing support and motivation and all of that stuff. I have thought, I really hope this isn't a kind of dangerous thing to do because we don't have many models for this way of working do we like my parents generation nobody in their group of friends or extended family worked in the way that I do I actually think there's been two changes one is you're right we the way we work has changed but also our relationship to work has changed so if you talk to your parents and certainly your grandparents none of them would have been so into work as we are But now what we find is for many, many workers, work is a really big piece of who they are. It's a big piece of their identity. It's a big piece of how they draw meaning about the world. And so to not share that with our close partners is kind of strange, right? So I think there's these two changes which are coming together and putting a lot more emphasis on our close relational partners to talk through work and about work. And as long as it's not too much, that's actually a good thing. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I definitely hadn't thought about it like that. And like I say, it's very, very reassuring. Do you think there's a kind of distinct difference just between what happens to your relationships when you are choosing to work from home in comparison to when you've been told to work from home? Does that change the dynamic? It's huge. Certain jobs are more amenable to work from home than others. Maybe there's a lot of client interaction. Maybe it's a pitching job, a sales job. It's really hard. And so it's much more stressful just to physically do the work is a lot harder from home, which obviously increasing stress, increasing pressure in the household. The choice element, right? You choose versus you're forced. When we're forced to do it, it increases our stress and it just makes it more difficult, whether it needs to be or not. For most people in the pandemic, both of them are forced to work from home And if they have children, they're also working from home, which is just a level of pressure, which is incredibly difficult to manage. Is there anything that you have found out that we can do to help us navigate that excess stress in terms of the pressure it puts on the relationships around us? 
Yeah, and it's something that may sound a bit counterintuitive, but when we think about relationships, and I'm thinking about romantic relationships now, like what keeps us together and what keeps us attracted to each other is often distance, right? So if you think about when do you find your partner most attractive, it's not when they're sat on the sofa in their PJs working next to you on the laptop, right? It's maybe at the party where you see them chatting to someone else and they've got their nice outfit on or you... You know, maybe you see them in a work context giving a presentation or in your case, maybe your husband's taking some photographs of someone and you're like, oh, you know, there's the person I fell in love with. And the problem with working from home all the time is we don't have those moments, right? And so what can happen is many couples are drifting apart, not because there's anything fundamentally wrong with the relationship, but the, the context just isn't right for the sparks to fly, And so I think when we're together all the time, the time apart becomes so much more important. I just so remember when I first started working from home and I was used to working in a newsroom, which was just constant chat. I mean, I don't know how I got anything done in retrospect. And then moving into Steve's home office and just being like, shoes, look at this on the internet. And he was like, oh my God, you have to stop talking. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do this. (laughs) And it was like the just proximity issue became so clear to me of like, oh, right, yeah, no, I do need to hold some stuff back. I think you're hitting on something really important because if we think about our brain processes, right, there's the chatter that goes on in our brain. And the great thing about having some distance is that we have time to process that before we share it. And the problem of proximity, and it's also the problem of social media, is the chatter comes out. And of course, if we think about the psychological function of that chatter, it's about helping us process ideas and thoughts and memories. It's not to like blurt it all out. And so I think that's another reason the the distance becomes important. It's like, can we process that before it just comes that stream of unconscious thought? Do you think there are ways in which people who live with or very close to people who work on their own can kind of better support them? Like, are there ways in which we can ask for help in a really sort of productive way, either from friends or people that we're, you know, in a household with? Yeah, I think that's a great question because what I find is that most relationships don't fail because people weren't supporting each other. They fail because people don't understand the support the other person needs. So that's very often where resentment comes, right? And it very often stems from this fact that we don't ask our partners or our housemates or whoever it is, how can we best support them? And we certainly don't tell it. And and I always say to people, this is the simplest thing you can do because it's like relational efficiency. If I know there are two or three things I can do in a day to support you, whether it's, you know, leave you alone for the whole morning without interrupting you, whether it's just giving you five minutes to vent at the end of the day, whether it's providing a sounding board once a week to talk through difficult issues, I know I'm investing in the right way and I only have to do those things and then my time's my own. So I think the communication in a household about what each person needs from each other is really vital. And I always say to couples always come back surprised like, oh, I didn't realize I only had to do that, right? I thought <laughs> I needed to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but actually I only need to do it at A and B. I'm like, this is great. And, you know, you'll be surprised how it doesn't take a lot. It just takes the right thing. I think that's so true. We try quite hard to celebrate each other's successes. And actually, that moves me on to another question that I wanted to ask you about is, is that something we need to think about quite carefully, both as people who relate to solo workers and as solo workers ourselves, in making sure that we 
allow the people around us to celebrate us and to to celebrate our achievements because I think that's one of the really tough things about being solo is often nobody except you knows what's happening if that's good but especially if it's not something so grand that you might put it online or whatever you know if it's just someone sent a nice email to say thank you there's nobody next to you necessarily at a desk where you can say look oh my god this thing happened or my appraisal was great or whatever so is there a way that we can navigate that well too I mean, I think for all of us, whether we work in solo or not, it's really important to celebrate our successes. And I think what I would say is that the mistake most people make is it's like, it was Rebecca's success, as opposed to thinking, well, actually it was our success, right? So even if you got a great article published and got some great feedback, you know, your husband probably supported you in that. Maybe he was a small piece of it. Maybe he gave some feedback. Even if we are solo workers and we're completely working on our own, we don't have any colleagues, we don't have any support, you still don't do it on your own. No one does it on their own. And I think it can sometimes take a lot for us to acknowledge, yeah, it was me who wrote the the article, but actually I still didn't do it on my own, right? I could not have done it unless you were minding the kids or unless, you know, you gave me that piece of feedback or actually that conversation we had really sparked an idea in me. And if I hadn't have had that, then I couldn't have done this piece. So I think the idea of a joint celebration, even if it's for an individual achievement, is really important. And that reflects something which is really important about loneliness as well, doesn't it? In that if you can remember how interconnected your your work is, then you are much less likely to feel isolated. And if you don't feel isolated, then you're less likely to feel sensations of loneliness so that's a really big part of it isn't it remembering that actually whatever you do is almost certainly unless you're like a potter in the outer hebrides and even then you're buying clay off somebody you know (laughs) selling it to someone else but you know even those of us that choose to be incredibly remote are still networked to a greater or lesser extent aren't we yeah and that's really important and it also speaks to the difference between solitude and loneliness Solo working is often, uh, there's a lot of solitude, but that doesn't have to mean it's lonely. And in fact, very often the most painful kind of loneliness is when we're with other, we're surrounded by others, but we still feel not connected. And so I think we need to disconnect this idea of solo working from you will necessarily be lonely. That's not the case at all. It's really about, can you see those connections? Can you find them and can you honor them? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'd be interested to talk a bit about the idea of mental load. 
I don't want to make it sound as though I think it always falls along gender lines. And I guess I'm particularly thinking about heterosexual relationships here, but I'm sure that it also plays out in other relationships too. And I just wondered what your thoughts are about that. And mental load to explain is the idea that one person in a relationship would be responsible for kind of silently taking responsibility for a huge amount of stuff. What do you think about all of that? Yeah, so I think it can happen in both situations, definitely. I also think it's not just about who does it, it's about who keeps it in mind. And in fact, the biggest mental load is being what one of my research participants called the central computer. So I remember her saying, (laughs) it's not that I do everything, but I'm responsible for making sure it gets done. And this very often happens between housemates, actually. And it also often happens between couples. Like when you look at who does what, it looks even. But there's one person who's saying, well, we need to call the electricity company and we need to do this with the landlord and we need to do that. And that is actually even more taxing than just doing it, right? It doesn't take much to put the washing machine on, but it's who remembers that the kids need the sports stuff for tomorrow and therefore I need to check the bags. And that's the thing that takes the effort. And what we see is, of course, on average, women still do more of that role unless there's someone working from home. And usually whoever's working from home will take on more of that role because there's a sense of, oh, well, you're at home. So can you just dot, dot, dot? And that's where actually the gender divide can break down. Right. So if the if the man is at, if the man is at home or in a homosexual relationship, you know, whoever's at home is, is probably more likely to take on that role. And this is where it's really important to distinguish between the doing and the, you know, holding it in mind, which is the most taxing point. And so I always say to people, whether it's because one of them's working from home or whether it's just a, a more traditional couple where the woman is likely to take more on. The best way to get around this is to completely split the tasks. This is the easiest way to fix that mental load problem. But yeah, it's a real trap for solo workers if you're the only solo worker in the house. I do think it's important to say that my work has primacy too. Like just because I'm at home doesn't mean that what I'm doing is in some sense not the most important thing during my working day. So to have that conversation with yourself on the one hand, but also to have it with the people around you, because I think often people who solo work might feel that their job is slightly lower status. And because it does tend to be more flexible, that can kind of make it seem somehow like it's less important at the same time. And I think it's really, really important to stand up for oneself and say it's it's just as valid as everybody else's work. I totally agree. And I think what I see in my research here is a difference between people who will always be solo, solo workers. So they're not looking to grow to the point where they would need to, you know, maybe take on associates or something. And people who have got that growth mindset and want to kind of expand their work out, but just don't want to be attached to an organization. And in fact, on the gender line, there's a really interesting trend at the moment where we're seeing, you know, if we think back to what traditional, traditional model would be, you know, the home, the homemaker wife and the breadwinning husband, we're seeing this new model emerging where the woman takes the stable corporate job and the man goes into entrepreneurship, which of course at the beginning is solo work, but their career still takes primacy right? Because, well, we're going to grow and maybe this time next year we'll be millionaires and stuff. So I think it's not it's not a destiny if you're a solo worker that you'll get pigeonholed that way. But yeah, it can happen. Oh, that's really interesting. 
how does this all play out for you? I keep talking about myself, <laughs> just wondering how easy it is, because I'm always really curious about how people who research particular issues manage to apply their knowledge, their deep knowledge to their own lives and how challenging or not that might be. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, my poor husband, right? <laughs> <laughs> always on the end of it. Um you know, in many ways, we have a unique situation. So we work together as well. We're both academics. We work in the same department. His office is across the corridor. But we're quite privileged in that our work is very flexible and we don't travel a lot. And we know in a, in a couple, the things that can really, really add a pressure is a lot of travel or, you know, you just have to be in the office from kind of eight in the morning to eight at night. That's not us. That said, we both like working and we work a lot. So there is a balance issue and we have kids. So, I mean, we have a lot of conversations around how is this going to work. We're also in a third country. So my husband is from Sicily. I'm from the UK. We live in France. So we don't have a social support network around us, which is probably the most challenging thing. I mean, we have a lot of good friends, but it's not the same as being able to call your mum in an emergency, right? And she comes around and look after the kids. So I think that is probably the most challenging thing for us is how do we replicate the social support network? The problem for couples like us, whether they're solo workers or not, but who are sort of outside of their family social networks is there's a lot of pressure on the nuclear family to kind of get it right. And with two big jobs, that's really hard. And I think our biggest struggle is this feeling of kind of being on a knife edge. It feels like a daily negotiation. What's it like in other countries? Because I'm obviously kind of very much marinated in the way that we do things in the UK. You're in France with an Italian partner and you've worked in other countries beyond France as well. Yeah, yeah, in the US. So does this stuff play out differently in different countries? Yeah, so I, I always think of countries providing a kind of um, a heat dial, right? And the country context either turns up the heat or lowers the heat on, on people working from home and in particular on couples. And there tends to be two things around that. One is just what we were talking about, right? What is the social support network and what's the assumption around child rearing? So if I think about Sicily or many Mediterranean countries, Middle Eastern countries, Asian countries, the idea that children would be raised primarily by their parents, it doesn't make sense. You know, child rearing really is a collective endeavor, which makes things a whole lot easier, right? Whether yeah. you're working from home or there. Now, obviously, there's complications with that, right? Your mother-in-law wants one thing, you want something else. But in terms of practicalities, it makes things a lot easier. Whereas I think in Northern Europe, ourselves, Germany, Scandinavia, the dial is turned up high because there's a lot of pressure on it's the parents who have to do everything, right? And do you think that will be important in terms of helping people kind of maintain relationships in a positive way? Because it provides that sort of space, that that valve, that release valve. Yeah. So there's research out which shows there's this magic formula, three plus two plus two. So three days working from home, two days in some shared space. And obviously two days weekend, although it would be nice to have a three-day weekend, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> three plus one plus three. Um, and it seems to be a bit of a magic formula for productivity and also for well-being, right? So the three days at home is the quiet time where you can really get your head down, think through those activities which require deep thought, like, you know, maybe write the article, write the report, whatever it is. The two days in the social sphere is what gives us the creativity and the input for the ideas. 
And we know that, you know, we, I know there's often the thing that someone will go and meditate in a cave. That does not work for the record. That's not how innovation occurs. That's not how creativity occurs. It creates from the bumping of ideas, right? So we meet someone, we have a conversation. Oh, they sparked a thought. And then obviously a two-day weekend. So that's great for productivity. It's great for well-being, right? We all need some alone time, some quiet time, but we also all need these connections. But those those conversations are actually, I think, how most magazine journalism starts like having of having course. worked in magazines, that's those those sort of like leapfrogging conversations where it does often start with. Did you watch Netflix? Did you notice how everyone on that program is wearing like shorts? A shorts a thing now. Oh, we should do a thing on shorts. <laughs> you know, it's like this kind of hop 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 through ideas. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we're missing. So yeah, so it doesn't need to be. And this is why it doesn't necessarily need to be a colleague, as in someone who's working in your area. In fact, what we see in terms of creativity is the breakthrough ideas often come from not the colleagues right from someone who's in quite a different area or even a different industry that we really get those kind of hop 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 conversations as it were I wasn't going to ask you about this but that makes me want to talk to you about incidental creativity and the kind of serendipitous moments because people have been talking so much about the missing out of on water cooler moments but there has been some interesting research that I read a couple of weeks ago that suggested that actually water cooler moments weren't really a thing <laughs> that didn't actually generate that much in the way of creative moments. But I, I wonder if we need to be a bit less obsessed with kind of creating water cooler moments with our teams, if we're remote or our collaborators in general, and just on having them in conversation generally, which could be in any part of our life. Would that be one way through that problem? Yeah, so I think it's a little bit of both. I think if we think of teams, what it is, is it's not necessarily the word water cooler, but it's when we have more space to have conversations which are not about a specific work task. And I think that often the moment of creative insight is a bit separate from those conversations. You know, we have a conversation, be it in the queue to buy a muffin or whatever it is, and then we're like, oh, that's interesting. And then the next day we wake up, oh, I got it, you know, and and that conversation sparked it. So we need to be a bit careful about the research of separating, you know, there's the germ of the idea from the aha moment, which are very often not at the same time. In fact, they're rarely at the same time. So it's about how can we make those informal spaces to have those conversations. But the people who are most creative have them with a wide range of people. So it's not, you never need them with your colleagues but it's, it should be that you shouldn't only have them with your colleagues. Like I've read articles that have got headlines like the death of innovation. <laughs> so I guess what I'm, I'm wondering is, do we just need to worry about this a bit less and just make sure that we're having lots of nice, interesting conversations with nice, interesting people? Yeah. So I think the worry about not being in the office is some people really are isolated. And I think the yeah. issue is isolation. The issue is not where is this happening and who is it happening with? Because I'm sure you've worked from home 12 years, but your job involves speaking to people all the time, right? So you're still having those conversations. I think what's happening when we look in the office now is some people are just not talking to anyone. Right. You know, they may be spending large chunks of the day just staring at the screen, doing very little, or on a Zoom meeting where it's discussing forecast figures and, you know, that's not a connection moment. I wondered a little bit as well about traditions. Like, how much do we kind of consciously or unconsciously absorb 
sort of traditional ways of working, like traditional nine to fives. And I wondered whether shedding a bit of that might be useful in terms of how we navigate our relationships as solo workers. So we internalise it hugely. And even if we think we're the kind of person who doesn't, we definitely do. And I think what we need to understand is it's also reinforced. So let's say your mum calls at eight o'clock in the evening and you're working well, why are you still working? You know, it's past six o'clock. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the media that says, you know, you should not work on the weekend. It's bad for you. But actually, for some people, that is a great time to work for some reason. You know, it buys them extra time in the week. I know myself, like I don't work most of the weekend, but Sunday night, I always sit down and like prep the week ahead. And it's great for me. So I think there's a lot of messages out there that are very normative and make us feel guilty or like we're killing our productivity or we'll never be mindful or whatever it is if we work at this time of the day, which is crazy. And I always think there's two things. I love this phrase, um, this Margaret Atwood phrase, phrase, right? You should always get the cream of the morning brain. So for most people, they're most creative in the morning. But that's not true for all people. Some people, my husband included, is super creative late at night. So I think working out when is your cream of the brain time is really important for us. I think that's really, really important. The the thing to do is to ask questions of yourself and your setup about what works and what doesn't and what works for the people around you as well. And also think about what might be temporary or not. If you've got kids of a certain age or caring responsibilities for elderly parents, these are phases of your life that will change and the relationships within them will change and develop and grow and become less dependent over time. And so whatever you're in, it's usually not something that you're going to be in for the very, very long term. Yeah. Although it can feel like it in the minute. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Thank you so, so much. This has been such an enlightening conversation. I'm really grateful for your time and all of your knowledge. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you. The thing that I took from this conversation in particular was about the bright white lines that Jennifer describes as boundaries over which we absolutely will not step that we need to create in tandem with the people in our household and I just think that's such an important message for all of us at the moment one of the questions that I get asked the most about how to navigate working from home particularly if it's new to you is about how to create boundaries even if people don't actually know that's the question that they're asking that it usually is the question and I hadn't explicitly thought Even though we do it, me and my husband, I hadn't explicitly thought about how we need to have really clear, frank conversations about what those bright white lines are. And we need to have them with the people that we live with, whoever they might be. Um, So I think that might be the thing that I take most from this, is that we just have to talk more to the people around us and be really clear about what we need and what we expect and accept that that's a two-way street. And then I think a lot of the stuff about working near other people who you're not actually working with could be a lot easier to get through. If you've liked what you've heard on The Solo Collective, then I would love it if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And do share us with anybody who you know who you think might benefit from joining us in The Solo Collective. You have been listening to a Chalk and Blade original, The Solo Collective, with me, Rebecca Seal. 
Produced by Laura Hyde, with support from Fatuma Keira, original music by Dee Plume, and mixed by Alex Portfelix. Chalk and Blade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.